Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. I'm Stacey Whitney, and I'm joined by Scott Modell. Hey, Scott. How's it going, Stacey? Going good. So on today's episode, we are going to be talking about individuals with intellectual disabilities. And one of the first things that I think is going to be important for us to cover, Scott, is language. Because we hear a lot of terms when it comes to people describing individuals with intellectual disabilities. And sometimes those terms can be either confusing or really not properly represent the person that someone's trying to describe. So one that we hear often that I think we should start with, and then of course we can talk about others. But the first is uh, this, it's actually an acronym that we hear a lot, which is IDD. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that um, and what you think we can do as far as language goes with talking about people with intellectual disability. Yeah, lots of thoughts on that. Um, It's like when I'm driving, I'm I'm a very thoughtful driver. I have a lot of thoughts on the other drivers. Uh, At least that's what my wife tells me. But um, (laughs) yeah, you didn't know I was going to throw that out there, right? Well, it came up the other day. Lots of thinking. Yeah, lots of thinking. But no, so... um, you know, intellectual disability is the term, oh, since uh, 2006, two, 2006, the Journal of Mental Retardation changed to the Journal of Intellectual uh, Disabilities, Intellectual Developmental Disabilities. Uh, in 2007, Rosa's Law was passed to change the term in the, in the federal, you know, uh, guidelines and federal law. And before intellectual disability, sort of the mild, moderate, severe, it was the term mental retardation, mild, moderate, severe. And of course, that term became very pejorative. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people said, oh, are we just being politically correct? And it really wasn't about political correctness because way before that, we changed the terms again because mild, moderate, and severe mental retardation used to be, and I don't remember the exact order, but moron, idiot, and... Imbecile. imbecile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember which was the, the lowest, but yeah, more an idiot or more an imbecile, imbecile, more an idiot, I think is how it went. So those became pejorative. Mm-hmm. And now most people don't even connect that to, I mean, it's hard enough being a, a kid, an adolescent, an adult with intellectual disability, then having that be associated with what people, when they use the term, oh, you know, that's so retarded, they mean it as stupid, funny, weird, awkward. So, right. so we moved away from it and largely people... Uh, use intellectual disability now. The problem with the broad term intellectual and developmental disabilities, which is sort of this broad category where you have uh, journals that the, the and the Association uh, for Individuals with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, the term gets uh, conflated. We actually intellectual disability is its own category. Right. Developmental disability is a really more of a legal term. It's not particularly useful in our field, I would say, outside of maybe qualifying for services. Legally, it is, of course. But it means different things, and it's inclusive of things like autism, cerebral palsy, uh, muscular dystrophy, things like that, things that occur during the developmental period. And that's even a misnomer, but it's usually uh, pre-birth, birth birth to 18 or to 21, depending on where you live in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, so when we people use the term DD mm-hmm. or developmental disability, it's starting to and oftentimes become synonymous with intellectual disability. 
So people then automatically assume individuals with cerebral palsy or autism have an intellectual disability because they're quote unquote, you can't see, you can see my quote signs, I'm making quote signs, quote unquote, uh, DD, mm-hmm. which again is, is, tends to be substituted for or an analog for intellectual disability. It's totally not. Right. Yeah, it's totally not. So to spell it out and clear the air, intellectual disability, so developmental disability, broad diagnostic, or broad category that includes multiple diagnoses. In the new DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, fifth edition, text revised, TR, they call it intellectual developmental disorder and then parenthetically intellectual disability. So it has the same basic, there's not much that's changed in there that's super meaningful for everyday practice for our listeners and for us. Um, intellectual developmental disorder is more you know, consistent internationally, but they still use the term intellectual disability. So how, how do you get diagnosed with an intellectual disability? Well, there's three basic criteria. It has to occur before or during the developmental period. And again, that's this sort of pre-birth, birth to 18, 21-ish, depending on where you live. Two or more deficits in adaptive functioning. Adaptive functioning is one's ability to engage in the community, communicate, personal safety. It encompasses a whole bunch of, of areas, and there's various assessment instruments to assess that. And then the, really the main one, one of the main ones is uh, of the three, is an IQ that's two or more standard deviations below the mean. So on the most IQ tests, not all, if the standard deviation is 100, I'm sorry, if the mean is 100 and the standard mm-hmm. deviation is 15, so you just, if you're gonna go two below the mean, you subtract 15 twice from 100 and you get 70. So typically, it's conceptualized as an IQ of 70 or below. And that 70 or below would be if the mean was 100 and the standard deviation was 15. So Mm -hmm. it's two or more standard deviations below the mean, two or more deficits in adaptive skill areas or adaptive functioning, and occurs during the developmental period. That's the diagnostic criteria. So I think that's really helpful for lots of different reasons, Scott. So first, the the distinguishing between intellectual and developmental disability because like I said so often we hear IDD and people sort of just clump all those things together and then what I hear you saying is making the point that we can't assume that if someone has a disability that falls in that developmental sort of category and I know you said there's different definitions even um, you know depending on where that's coming from and then separating that from intellectual disability. The other thing that I like that I think is going to be helpful to our listeners is that so often we hear IQ equals intellectual disability. And so those other two uh, diagnostic criteria, I think, are really important. And I don't I don't want to say they're ignored, but people don't necessarily know that those are things that also need need to be present in order for the diagnosis to 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 be made. Right. Like somebody con- conceivably with uh, Down syndrome might not meet the diagnostic criteria for intellectual disability. I mean, most do, mm-hmm. but some individuals with Down syndrome have IQs higher than 70, again, using 100 as the mean, 15 uh, as the standard deviation, and don't have two or more adaptive areas. So, yeah, so it's important that it's in terms of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Practically, on some level, it doesn't matter what somebody's label is. We still have to meet them where they are. And oftentimes we think of autism 
on a spectrum, and that's a good way to think of it. It's also important to think about intellectual disability on a spectrum from this idea of sort of mild to severe, but in with intellectual disability, an individual's language ca- capabilities vary, their capacity for conversation varies, mm-hmm. and their IQs vary. And we can talk a little bit about IQ, which is, I think, what you were wanting me to do. And we make some assumptions if somebody's IQ is, let's say, 70 or 68 versus somebody who's in 38, mm-hmm. we will may automatically assume that the individual with the 60-ish IQ has more skills, abilities, independence than the person with the 30-ish IQ. And in general, you'd probably be right. I know multiple people, and I've given this story in trainings before, where you have somebody in the 30-ish IQ that works, takes public transportation, dresses themselves, cooks their own meals, and somebody with the 60s IQ isn't able to do any of those things. And there's a lot of variables that can explain it. Co-occurring disabilities can explain it. Um, Lots of things. One of the number one things that explains it is how they were raised, the education that they had, expectations that were put on them. So don't just look at IQ. We always say IQ is one of a number of variables. It's one data point to guide us on trying to capture, you know, an individual's overall ability to communicate, um, relay information, and their use of language. Well, and and I think that that, too, that whole idea of being on a spectrum, because we all sort of are, and we're all influenced by our environment and all those other things that you talk about, Scott, that make people who they are. So to assume that one data point would encompass a person's entire skills and abilities, you know, doesn't really do anybody a real service or even you as a professional to make assumptions about somebody based on that one data point. And and I'm going to try to not oversimplify it because I know it's more complicated than that, but I wouldn't want to be judged on my entire ability, you know, based on my IQ score. Right. Like or on my SAT score, for example, like a standardized test is one data point one day, one time where I'm, you know, demonstrating something for someone that doesn't give an entire picture of the person that I am and the experiences that I've had. Yeah, absolutely. So this speaks to, you know, doing groundwork before we go into a forensic interview Mm -hmm. and making sure we have multiple data points and pieces of information if we can and if we don't have it, then we got to do that during uh, the interview, and uh, we talk about establishing that during rapport and other things and other podcasts we've had. One of the things that I, I think would be interesting to talk about, a couple things. One is, what are some of the vulnerabilities? Why are people with intellectual disabilities more susceptible? The data tells us that across all disability groups, which are at greater risk, up to four times greater than the general population— for things like rape, sexual assault. And among that group of all people with disabilities, those with intellectual disabilities are at the greatest risk. So what puts them at risk? We can talk a little bit about that, some general characteristics that might be useful to talk about for forensic interviewing, and then maybe wrap it up. So I think that that's great because knowing what the risks are can help us in our interviews and investigations ultimately, knowing where, you know, offenders maybe are seeing the vulnerabilities and, and exploiting them because we know that often that's an intentional behavior. So, um, so yeah, I think it'd be great for, for us to talk a little bit about that. So what are some of the, the vulnerabilities and increased risk factors for this population? Yeah, number there, there's a number of them. I mean, most, most um, salient to me is that they're perceived. So we have data research and, and we see it in our practice. So if we're thinking about 
from a victim advocate, we're thinking about parents, teachers, we're thinking about also on the investigation side as well, what are some of the vulnerabilities? Well, we know that some perps specifically select individuals with intellectual disabilities because they perceive them not to be good communicators of information. They perceive them to be not as assertive because in general, uh, individuals with intellectual disabilities are taught to be passive, obedient, follow follow directions, don't want to get anybody in trouble. And they're perceived to have not a very good vocabulary. So if you can't report what happened, then you become a better victim. And again, among all groups, Mm -hmm. those with intellectual disabilities, but throw in somebody who doesn't speak, it doesn't communicate vocally through speaking, they're at the greatest risk for victimization. And as you know, we have trainings on how to communicate with those folks and conduct a forensic interview with somebody who who doesn't speak uh, what we would call vocally speaking. So that's one area. I think that this they're selected as victims. Another is we tend to infantilize, and we talk a lot about this in our training, infantilize mm-hmm. individuals with disabilities by the tone we use, the games we provide them, the movies they watch, and some of the rationale is, well, they like it. Well, sure, I mean, if we continue to present these things, and we use this, oh, well, they have a, you know, they're like a seven-year-old. I'm consulting on two cases right now, and that just keeps coming up in each case separately. Oh, they're like a seven-year-old or an 11-year-old or a five-year-old, and there's nothing really useful about that because there's no universal understanding of what we mean by a five-year-old or brain of a five-year-old or functions like a five-year-old. Because first off, all five-year-olds are not the same. Secondly, the what do we mean by function? You know, What do we mean by brain of? Mm-hmm. There's lots of different things that that can mean. So it's better to just describe somebody's skills and abilities than to leave with this idea of functions like a five-year-old. So we want to get away from that. And there are if they're 20 or 30 or 40, then they have 35 more years experience as a 40-year-old life experience and world experience. Oh, and they're in a 40-year-old body right, as opposed exactly. to a five-year-old body. So mm-hmm. there's lots of different different things. So I have a, a story that I, I was going to try to weave in because I just thought of it, and I'll, I'll see if I can make it make sense. There was a – I heard a story where there was a, a, an adult and – I don't know if you know this, but adults masturbate, Stacey. So I did like know both that. male, female, and you know, people right. masturbate. And people have um, hormones, biology's a thing, right? Regardless of um, you know Yeah, ability. you people have hormones. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. They sure do. Re- regardless of where you fall on any spectrum, exactly. people have hormones. Mm-hmm. So people do masturbate. Well, anyways, there was an adult and you know, sometimes people will choose inappropriate places to masturbate. I mean, I think what was that guy on CNN masturbating during a Zoom meeting? Whatever. It happens to all people. It happens to all people. I'm not trying to pick on the guy, but it happens to all people. Well, this adult with an intellectual disability was masturbating in the bathroom at his day program, and the worker there said, you know, he, he can't be doing that. And sure, we can argue that it's not appropriate to masturbate at work. But she said, well, he has the brain of a five-year-old. And the response was, yeah, but his penis is 28. Exactly. You know? <laughs> so you knew that story. You knew that that was coming. So that's a good way. I think that's a good way to think about it. Well, enough talk about masturbating. Um, let's go into... So anyways, so this infantilization, thinking of them as infants or children. So when we think of them as like really young, like, oh, brain of a three-year-old functions as a five-year-old. Again, that's useless. 
then we tend not to think of them as sexual beings or needing to talk to them about sexuality. And then that can put them at risk for victimization if they don't know what constitutes abuse, if they don't know healthy relationships or boundaries. If no one ever said to them, hey, it wouldn't be okay for someone to touch you in this place or you know, shouldn't be asking you to do this to them and that wouldn't be okay in whatever circumstances. Exactly, and it gets critically important if the individual needs assistance with some activities of daily living like toileting and, and dressing and so forth where somebody may have to touch parts of their body for, for hygiene to understand the difference. Well, and the other part of that that also becomes confusing if we're talking about individuals with intellectual disabilities that are adults, thinking back to our episode that we talked about um, consent. So just because someone has a disability doesn't mean that they can't consent to those activities either. So there's the distinction. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> it's I so, was listening, I promise. Yeah, no, and that's it, not to cut you off, but just, yes, it absolutely, let's emphasize that again. Just because you have an intellectual disability doesn't mean you can't legally ethically, rightfully consent to sex, it's so often people default to, well, well, they can't. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Well, but I think that that's, that's an important thing for us to remember too, because people should be taught what's okay and not okay. But part of that is if you consent to it under the right circumstances, it is okay. But there are some like relationships that are prohibited based on relation, you know, based on power and control dynamics. So all of those things come into play. And that's sort of, as I'm thinking about all the things we've talked about so far today, Scott, how does this translate to doing a forensic interview, having all this information in our head and making sure that we are listening and capturing and not letting ourselves fall to treating people like, especially people who are adults, um, like children and right. in our conversation, not having some of those biases and assumptions about about that they would maybe present like a child or have the same wants and desires as a child because they're an adult. Yeah, first off, get some additional training if you can. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's lots of trainings offers. Obviously we offer trainings, but there's others. The more training and experience you can get, the better. But in general, a couple things to think about. Most individuals with intellectual disabilities struggle with abstract concepts things like hypotheticals, mm -hmm. what-if scenarios, time, when, uh, those they tend to struggle with. So I would say, and may have restricted vocabularies, not all. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kick it back to you. Having somewhat of a restricted vocabulary, meaning three, four-word, five-word sentences max, and struggling with abstract concepts. So what are some suggestions on how to, and I already know you know, because we would do some of these with a younger child, but let's say somebody's 28 or 58 or 68, we don't want to talk to them like a child, we don't want to do a child interview, but some of the same strategies we can pull from and use. So uh, there's so many that I'm thinking of, but as you're thinking about abstract concepts, making sure that we use concrete and literal language, that we ask one question at a time, even though it's tempting to stack questions, so um, or even stacking concepts. One of the one of the ones that comes up a lot that we give as an example is, "Oh, is anyone at home using drugs or alcohol?" Well, that's two concepts, and you also don't use alcohol; you drink it. If we're being very concrete, so that's an example of a question that we hear often about substances in you know the house or witnessing 
the use of um, drugs and alcohol and people asking a question like that, that kind of question could potentially be confusing. So thinking about breaking down questions to one concept at a time and using very concrete and literal language are two of the first things I think of. But then as we expand, even thinking about using multi-session interviews and being cautious of those hypotheticals, because those come up even when we think about um, interview instructions. So if I said, what would you say sometimes comes up and there's better ways that we can ask those questions. I love it. Well, uh, anything else you want to know about intellectual disability or anything kind of we talked about in our short little segment here? Happy to happy to add and or happy to wrap up. Were there any other um, tips that I forgot that you think that would be helpful for people either within an interview or an investigation? Well, I think I think you covered it again. You know, when oftentimes we want to know when something happened. Mm -hmm. So, so my oldest brother, Chris, has an intellectual disability. He would struggle with, he doesn't really conceptually understand the difference between one day, two weeks, two years. He knows when something feels long or time. He doesn't know how to tell time. He can't read a watch, can't read a clock. So how, do, how would you deal with that with Chris? So knowing context is usually a lot more helpful than time anyway. So asking about where he was, maybe who else was around, um, the course of the day, sort of a start to finish, depending on what we establish in baseline and his ability to narrate those things would be much more helpful, I would imagine, for Chris, but for other people as well, because even, um, you know, people without intellectual disability, our brains don't always work like that. We can't say, oh, something happened on, you know, June 3rd at 6 o'clock. It's usually not how our brains work to begin with. That's, I love it. You should be a forensic interviewer trainer. Oh, thank you so good. much. <laughs> I'll work on that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's good. I think that's a good th thing to think about. So just as a quick recap, you know, IDD, intellectual developmental disability, broad category, it's fine. The name in and of itself is fine. We just don't want to lump all individuals who fall under that broader developmental disability like cerebral palsy, autism, and so forth that automatically that's the same as an intellectual disability or they have an intellectual disability. They might. They could have a co-occurring uh, disability like intellectual disability with autism or with cerebral palsy, but unless we know, we're going to assume they don't. And it comes down to really asking more questions about that individual, yep. getting to know them from the people around them if we can, and if we don't have that opportunity, then going in with that, that open mind and not assuming that someone has an intellectual disability or because they have an IQ of a certain number that that is going to be a over, um, you know, that's going to give us details about their overall skills and abilities. Great. All right. Well, hopefully this was useful for those of you who tuned in. All right. Thanks so much, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.